these numbers do jump around. Another way to say it is real recoveries come in fits and starts. And November was in some sense a start and December was a little bit of a fit. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Friday, January 8th. And that was Christina Romer, chair of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, you heard at the top, talking about the new unemployment numbers. And uh, we'll have more on that today on the program. Also, someone who's thought a lot about unemployment, John Maynard Keynes. That's right. We have an exclusive interview with John Maynard Keynes. (laughs) We do not. No. (laughs) Fortunately, he passed away in 1946. But I did interview the next best thing, Lord Robert Skidelsky, who is Keynes's biographer. Really, he wrote the definitive biography on Keynes. But before we get to that, I believe you have in your hands the Planet Money Indicator. The indicator is 85,000. And that is the rather sad number. It is the net number of jobs that the economy lost last month. You know, this morning I kept hearing the promos like, oh, we're going to hear the unemployment numbers and people are expecting this will be the first time in a long time that actually unemployment went down. No jobs were lost. Jobs were gained. But no, the truth was not as good as had been hoped. Although even with these additional jobs lost, the unemployment rate held steady at the disturbingly high rate of 10 percent. And I just want to just dig in on that for one second. You know, I've been hearing we've been losing jobs for month after month after month now. Although the November figures were just revised up. But, you know, just it's you hear the steady drumbeat of like job losses, job losses, job losses. But the unemployment rate stays the same, which is a little weird, right? It seems like each net job loss should drive up the unemployment rate. That's what it seems like. Right. And that brings us to this other statistic, the crucial participation rate. When they figure out the unemployment rate, 10 percent, what is that? 10 percent of what? 10% of all the people in the economy who are actively looking for a job. So if you become pregnant and decide to stay home and raise a kid, then you are not looking for a job. You're not part of the big number of people looking for work. Sometimes that's just because people retire, they go back to school, whatever. But people just giving up, just saying, I'm not even going to bother. I've been trying for a year now to get a job, and I haven't been successful, so forget it. That lowers the participation rate. So sort of perversely, sometimes, particularly the end of a long economic slowdown, unemployment can drop, not as a result of more people getting work, but as a result of more people just giving up on the idea of ever getting work. Right. And that participation rate, that is simply the percentage of the population who consider themselves looking for a job, who consider themselves part of the labor force. And that rate, the participation rate, is at a 24-year low, 64.5%. So basically, one-third of the population has, for whatever reason, stopped looking for work. Now, some of those people are three. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) And some of those people have retired. But it's as an over, it's a blunt instrument, but it's also indicative in that it's... Some large number of them are people are in such despair, they aren't even trying to look for work. Right. So I think this is a perfect segue into our talk today with Robert Skidelsky. He is the John Maynard Keynes biographer. His magnum opus, his multi-volume biography came out in the 90s. And then the one-volume abridged version came out in 2004. I I actually read – well, not – all of it, but I read a lot of it. Almost all the 1,056 pages. <laughs> right. I did not tackle the the magnum opus, the, the many, many volumes. He has a new book out. It's called Keynes, The Return of the Master, about how to apply Keynes to this current economic crisis. And I, I have to say, Skidelsky is 
the the best biographer I have ever read. Whether you care about Keynes or not, whether you care about economics or not, it's just he does everything you want a biography to do. I mean, there's just great scenes. There's lots of sex and intrigue and politics. And, and he just brings the man to life, but he also brings the time and the other people he's dealing with to life. And it's also a great intellectual history of Keynes's ideas. It doesn't read like a textbook, but you do find yourself just more richly understanding Keynes's rather complicated ideas and as well as the ideas of those who disagreed with him. It's just I can't speak highly enough to how great a book it is. But I don't understand. Did you like it or not? Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> all right. And Adam, I know one of the things that you talked to Skidelsky about was was how Keynes became the Keynes we know today. He wasn't always a household name, at least in the households of people who listen to us. Right. He he started his career as a classical economist, you know, a, a, just a standard economist. I mean, he had he had a flair for writing about the controversies of the day. The 1920s in, in the U.S. were this big boom time. But in uh, Europe and in his home of England, it was a particularly tough time for all sorts of reasons. And he was a columnist and a popular writer, but he wasn't trying to change anything. Right. And that was because basically there wasn't a reason this is according to Skidelsky, there wasn't a reason for him to stand out yet. I mean, at least in the early part of the 20th century, when Keynes was beginning his career, there wasn't a need for a bold new economic thinker that came a little bit later. So there was no problem, really, calling for Keynesianism at that time. I, it when, was when, perfectly appropriate to be a standard conventional yeah. classical economist. And, and uh, because, you know, when, when, when there was unemployment and then unemployment did start to develop more, more prominently at the end of the 19th century, the unemployed disappeared. They all got on boats and went to the United States. Right. <laughs> so, you <laughs> so know, there I, and but, <laughs> it was, the, you know, the frontier was open. And when countries screwed up, they screwed up in such obvious ways that you didn't need a genius to come up with an entirely new way of understanding economics to figure it out. You yeah. just knew, boy, Russia, you really blew it. When you and the world economy was less connected. Um, it was becoming connected, but it was less connected. So what went on in one place didn't affect what went on in another place so much. Um, but but uh, uh, it was the shortness of these uh, episodes that, that uh, ma- made people not think that economics needed recasting. And it was later the persistence of those episodes, the fact that unemployment went on and on and on, and after a crash, the economy didn't sort of recover, um, uh, that, that gave rise, I think, to Keynesian economics. And, and I, I have to say, I'm just going to keep um, uh, being obsequious with you because, um, I mean, f- for anyone who thinks the words gold standard and currency exchanges are, are, are boring ideas, I mean, your chapters on the 1920s and the way that Keynes, because many people believed Keynes. Many people thought he was right. But the, but the political situation, particularly between the UK and the US, just made it impossible. And it's so painful. You, you, you read these battles between the US Treasury and the British Treasury and, uh, and, and Keynes constantly writing op-eds and, and, and um, essays and columns that, that just precisely say, this is what you need to do. And everyone not doing it. It's, it's, mm. it, it. it's just agonizing reading. It's fascinating, wonderful writing, but it's just agonizing to read. These. Yes. In 1931, he said um, he compared himself to Cassandra. 
um, who, uh, uh, whose, whose prophecies had come about, but who was never able to influence events in time. And they weren't ready for it. Uh, and and, and uh, you know, there was this hiatus when Britain was losing its leadership and couldn't, uh, couldn't uh, manage the world system in the way I think it had done in the 19th century. And America wasn't yet ready to. And so the whole monetary system disintegrated in the 1920s. And the dollar was already the most important currency, but America wasn't prepared to do what a key currency country should do, which is to make dollars freely available everywhere. Um, and then, and then the, the First World War uh, was a terrific watershed. It had dis- it disrupted all the patterns of world trade. And so the 19th century never recovered after the, after the First World War. And so that's when Keynes started saying, well, what, 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 what economics do we need for this new system? whereby the frontiers closed, um, there's no leadership in the world economy, uh, there's a lot of protectionism around, and, uh, and then, of course, you had the Great Depression. Right. So, and, and getting to, so, so the 1920s, Keynes really becomes, I mean, sort of like Paul Krugman or someone of that. Very good, a very good uh, comparison. I think Paul, Paul Krugman is the only economist today who has a column, a regular column, and he, uh, and who writes it in, in language that people can engage with, understand. And that's a very strong point of view. And Keynes was a bit like that. He was actually the proprietor of, of one of the leading weekly journals, and he wrote frequently for, for, for the national newspapers. It's very interesting. Some of his most interesting proposals uh, in the mid-1920s uh, were written as articles in the Evening Standard, which, is, which was a popular paper. Now you can't imagine anyone write, any one of uh, intellectual quality writing for a tabloid. It's like Krugman writing for the New York Post or something yeah, like something that. something like that. Maybe yeah. he has, but about it's, it's, you know, the yeah. New York Times is fine. But, but a tabloid, it just doesn't ask people to write serious stuff any longer. So um, if, if Keynes had died in 1930, you know, probably historians would know who he was, but he wouldn't certainly be a household name. It, it, it's really his response to the Great Depression that is the reason we're talking about him That's and right. everyone is talking about him. And um, I, I think first let's explain why the Great Depression was so confusing to someone who only had a classical economic toolkit. Um, the the basic idea in classical economics is if if you have an economic slowdown or or a shock, people will stop buying things uh, because they don't have any money and they're afraid about the future. And so producers will lower their prices and eventually they'll lower them to the point where people will start buying them again. The same thing can be said for wages. And the 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 core of that story is economy self-correct. If you have a problem, don't worry. Just wait a little while. The economy will correct. But in the by certainly 31, 32, 33, we have a global economy and, and it's not correcting. Now, now, economists talked about equilibrium, that, that the economy goes back to equilibrium, to full employment, to, to a growing position. And there was absolutely no tools to understand an economy where the equilibrium seemed to be well below full employment, well below full utilization, in in other words, empty factories, um, not producing goods. And and it makes absolutely no sense in classical economics that you could have so much money left on the table, so much 
you know, how, how, can, how can this go on? Is, is that the basic problem that Keynes stepped in to answer? Yes, yes, I think, I think that's exactly what classical economics said of his day, that the economies were self-adjusting. But they said something even stronger, which is they were very rapidly self-adjusting. It wasn't that they adjusted after five years and everyone found their new level, but they adjusted within a few months. So it's not something government had to worry about. And it's not just wages and prices of, of the kind we think about, but, but they also thought the rate of interest would fall um, naturally to, to adjust savings and investment again, so that, in fact, it would be profitable to borrow. Um, and, and he said these, these so-called automatic adjustment um, instruments, which classical economists relied on, for their theory of the self-regulating economy just didn't work. He so said either they didn't work or they worked far too slowly to, um, to um, offset uh, what would be the fall in output and employment. And once you had that fall in output and employment, it would be cumulative down to a certain level because, you know, my spending or my, 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 my refraining from spending diminishes your income. And so it goes on and gradually the spending uh, gets smaller and smaller. And, and at some point it stops um, for, for reasons that you know, uh, things do in the end. But he says, really, do we want to wait for two or three years and allow unemployment to reach 10, 20 percent? In America, reach 25 percent in the Great Depression. In Britain, it was well over 10 percent. In Germany, it reached nearly 40 percent at one time. And then when it reaches 40 percent, Hitler comes along. So do we want to risk that and, and wait for these sort of very slow, forces of recovery to gather speed. No, we, are, we need to intervene in the process. That's what he said, and get the spending up. And if private people aren't spending, then the government has to spend. Well, there has to be some, as the economists say, external source of spending injected in. Now, government spending and then stimulating the economy, that's not a trick. And any classical economist could know that in the short term, the government could spend a ton of taxes and borrow from the future and, and spend a lot of money and that'll stimulate a lot of, um, uh, you know, they'll consume a lot of goods, which means the producers will produce a lot of goods and employ more people. That's not the trick that Keynes came up with. I mean, I, I can go out and get a bunch of credit cards and buy a lot of junk and for some period of time, my, I will look like a very rich man. It's just eventually I have to pay it you back. You have to pay it back. And, and classical economics would have taught that... Um, that this was eventually a zero-sum game, that you're borrowing money from the future, but you're going to have to pay the money back in the future. And so any gains today will be losses tomorrow, either in the form of reduced spending or increased inflation that will effectively you know, make every dollar or pound worth a lot less than it was. But what Keynes came up with was, was a way of understanding government spending today based on borrowing that wasn't self-destructive, that, that, that didn't destroy its own benefit. Yeah, because it stopped the economy from shrinking. If you take that credit card example, when you spend a, a lot of money on credit cards, you're adding to someone else's income. So he can either repay his debts or, or spend, spend some more. And so just spending the money and, 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 and spending the money f f from your own credit card facilities doesn't just make you rich or feel rich. It makes everyone else feel richer. And and that means they spend more. So I think it was 
what he what he would say was that the classical theory that in in you know that you 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 shouldn't spend on rubbish or you shouldn't spend more than your income is 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 in exactly right when you're at full employment but when you're not at full employment extra spending adds to your income and it adds to the income of, of the whole economy and therefore it is the instrument by which we grow he would have said, of course, it's better um, when you have a stimulus to spend it on, on projects that also add assets to the economy over, over time. But if you can't think of any, you can spend it on rubbish and the economy will still start growing. And if it starts growing again, um, because there's more demand, there'll then be more investment. And, 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 and as the economy um, gets wealthier, so the deficits will start shrinking. God, you know, I mean, a lot of things were passing through my mind as I was listening to that, but one of them is really I should start using the word rubbish more often. I do love the word rubbish. <laughs> it's so good. It's, and we never yeah. use it in America. I'm going to start trying to adopt it. The, the funny thing about Robert Skidelsky is he was writing a totally different biography about someone else totally, and Keynes was sort of this character in the background of this other guy's life, and he was like, oh, wait, I should probably read a little bit about Keynes. This was, if I remember correctly, in the late 60s, and suddenly he was swallowed alive by Keynes for 25 years or so as he just devoted his entire life to to studying Keynes. And so that ended, you know, sometime in the 90s. And I think, you know, while he obviously is is fascinated by Keynes, he was ready to move on and, and never think about Keynes again. I actually remember, Alex, when you and I were doing our story on Keynes um, – a while ago, we, we called Robert Skidelsky, and at the time he said, oh, no, I'm done talking about Keynes. I don't want to talk about Keynes anymore. Well, this crisis got so big, and Keynes' name came up so much that he wrote this book, Keynes, The Return of the Master, because he felt like this is the next period of time that Keynes was essential. You know, there was the Great Depression, and now, now, and he felt that Keynes was an incredibly relevant source. So. Right. When, you, when you're confronted with a severe economic downturn, such as the one we were faced with in 2008 and we're still getting out of t- still today, Keynes is sort of the only guy you can go to. There's been a lot of thinkers who think about like sort of theoretical, but like Keynes was the only one who was really like, if this happens, if something that looks like a depression is about to happen, here's what I think you should do. And there weren't that many people who had written about that. Right. And obviously, as our story tells, and as this podcast has made clear, there are Plenty of people who think Keynes's toolkit was not appropriate and, and did not work. Right. And there are obviously plenty of people who think it's a great toolkit and it works brilliantly. But there's not really a whole bunch of other toolkits. I mean, when, once interest rates go down to zero, you've sort of used up the Milton Friedman toolkit, roughly. I mean, there's other things you can do, but but big picture. So so Keynes is the next, <laughs> the next right. guy that you can go to. <laughs> right. If you think it needs fixing, there's only one person who can give you the tools. So a lot of people think, you don't need to fix it. It'll fix itself. Anyway, the, that story that we did, it's at our blog, npr.org slash money. We'll link to it there. And there's a lot of good stuff in that story, um, uh, description stuff. But I also believe that I think I can make this claim that it is the only story on Keynes you'll ever hear on public radio that uses the term gay porno alright well I think that's a fabulous place to end <laughs> uh, please send us your thoughts your ideas your comments to planetmoney at npr.org I'm Adam Davidson and I'm Alex Bloomberg thanks for listening <laughs>